Welcome everyone to the Tidings podcast where Janthi discusses economics, history and everything in between. Today we have with us not one, not two, but three incredible guests. Welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you all here. For our listeners, could you please introduce yourselves? Who are you? What are you interested in and what do you do? Hi, my name's Ben, Benjamin Hofner Brodsky. I've recently been studying at Harvard and studying uh, economics and statistics and things of that flavor. These days, I'm focusing more on um, research and building projects. I do work in data science and empirical research, helping researchers to work on their empirical methods and produce better outputs. I do some work with the U.S. Treasury, helping to work on environmental environmental and sustainable policies through financing regulations in South and Southeast Asia. And I am building some fun software projects and always looking for new things of that flavor to jump on. We can go into other side projects perhaps at a later point. Let me pass it on to our more interesting. Hi to all the listeners. My name is Tarun Timosina. I'm originally from Nepal Valley, 200 kilometers west of the capital. I'm currently a junior now a rising senior studying economics and government. My primary interests are developmental econ as well as international political economy. And I really love to read and write about stuff that's at the intersection of politics and economics. And obviously I'm not as accomplished as uh, Benjamin, but for this summer I'm doing foreign policy research on Nepal and India because international relations is also one of my burgeoning interests, which I hope to dive deeper in grad school, perhaps. Hi, I'm Gaurang. I'm also a rising senior, which is crazy to think about because our exams ended like two days ago. So yes, we are officially rising seniors. I'm studying economics, but with a focus on political economy. The last couple of years, especially the last one year, has been a strong focus on America and China as the primary countries of focus and understanding how they have developed, what are the issues and what are the genesis of all those issues, especially in the political economy framework. And then my next remaining Final year at Harvard is going to be focused entirely on India and trying to answer the question of, you know, we have 300 million people below the age of 18. How and where will they get jobs once they are of, once they're able to join the labor force? So that's the primary focus going forward. Perfect. Thank you so much. My first question is that you're all studying economics at Harvard. Why did you choose this subject? And what is it about economics that appeals to you? I can take that first, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. So one thing people, high school students especially, need to understand is economics is a really broad subject. You can literally do anything you want. If you have a bachelor's in economics, you can go into finance, you can go into government jobs, you can do politics, you can do research, consulting, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very broad measure to have. And I think and there's a really, really nice blog at MIT's admissions website that I can link you to, which does does a fantastic job of explaining this, but mm. if you have a broad set of interests and you don't really know what you want to do, which is the case with people like me, maybe perhaps not as much with Benjamin and Gorang, who are incredibly focused and who've had their plans sorted out since high school, I assume. But for most of us humans, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's unimaginable that we I, I did not have any plans coming in. You know, I had a mm-hmm. good sense of what I wanted to do, which was you know, go back to Nepal and do some things related to, you know, understanding the politics of the country, understanding the history of the country, and perhaps accelerating or con- contributing somehow to 
the acceleration of economic development in my country, given I was from like one of the poorest countries in the world. So for me, that was the motivation. That's why I'm also my, my focus within economics and economics is a lot of different soft fields. And the economics that I'm doing is primarily developmental economics, trying to understand why some economies are, are industrialized, some economies, you know, are doing better, especially in the West versus their other economic models fraught with, you know, political corruption, fraught with all sorts of different problems. And because of which, you know, a billion of the world's population is living below $2 a day, right? When there's incredible amounts of wealth in the US, in Canada, in richer parts of the world. And that that fundamental inequality that I experienced, you know, when I was in, in, in Nepal versus when I came to the US, that's very jarring and that's very striking, you know, to a young mind who's trying to understand why the world looks the way it does. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was the primary motivation. And economics, as I said, has a lot of different tools. You know, as an economist, you'll be trained in statistics, you'll be trained in, you know, thinking rationally about human preferences, which has its fair share of flaws. But yeah, so for my purposes for understanding development, I think that that's the route that I took. But the fascinating thing about economics is people have like dozens of different motivations for doing it, which you will find out when Gorong and Benjamin answer your question. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I'm pretty sure I remember listening to you tell me about like seven different concentrations over the course of the first year mm -hmm. that you have gone through. <laughs> it's quite funny, but so did I actually. That was another factor. So I, I, in high school and before that was always very interested in passionate economics. And that comes naturally. Some of the things Tarn has already mentioned and referred to, but for me, I was born and raised in Delhi till I was eight years old. And then I moved to Hong Kong uh, till I was 15. And so what I've seen is two countries of dramatically different aggregate economies. And so it looks very different, but there's also a shared sense of you know, stunning inequality, right? I, I know the inequality in Delhi, it's much more obvious, but in, in Hong Kong, you see the beautiful skyscrapers, you see almost everything is luxury and, and fantastic, but you have almost 20% in poverty in the city that is of, in such insane prosperity. And you also have people, you know, of, the, of those who are in, in poverty, often are staying in like cage homes, you know, six foot by two foot cages, pretty much, is where the housing is. So, you know, that's a question that a young uh, student, when you're trying to understand how the world works around you that question is seems to me like what you know reverberated the most and i was like i don't want to i want to understand why that happens and also how can we create a future systems institutions that can help avoid situations and like you know how, how to avoid the situation and how to build that so that was the the motivation my particular pathway was just that the first year first three semesters of college i was exploring and that was primarily because economics how you think about it and how it's taught and what classes you take, they're very different. And so my initial experience in economics wasn't the most exciting because it wasn't very applied. And so I felt like this wouldn't be the place where I can answer this question on inequality. Or, and, and so I spent some time doing statistics and some math, and I also spent some time with the Gov department, which is where actually I found out that economics is what I want to do, but now focus on political economy. And since then it's been much more exciting and fun. I've been a happy man. But yeah, go ahead, Ben. Also, we're drinking tea, and so like <laughs> I'm making tea here. It's poor tea, and a lot of this is just moving around tea in the background. If you can't see, <laughs> yeah. Good economics happens over good tea. I think I came to economics in a pretty different way. I wasn't explicitly interested in economics as a field, 
In fact, I came to economics because interested in just about every field besides economics. <laughs> I would get really excited about a problem in science, and then I'd get really furious about a problem in inequality, and then I'd, I'd be trying to figure out how to solve some you know, more you know, specific problem or understand a distributional issue or a human behavioral quirk, which each have their own separate fields to study. You can study public health, and you can study psychology, and you can study governance, and you can study a field that corresponds to any given problem that you'd want to solve. Or you can try to study things that allow you to tackle a lot of problems at once. And that, to me, is really where economics tends to shine. I don't think it's all of economics, but certain portions of economics that are structured to be so generalist that they're more of frameworks for decision making and optimization, you know, at large. And I think that tends to focus on fields like microeconomics, which is the study of how individual decision makers assess costs and benefits and then make decisions based on preferences, which is just about, you know, one of the most fundamental frameworks out there for, you know, working on any problems and working on, you know, your own life and decision making. And it also includes fields like game theory, which is such a broad way of modeling behavior across just about any discipline where you have players that are assessing their own interests and making decisions based off of those, which tends to be, you know, every field, public health, government, app design, everything is a bunch of people walking around trying to optimize for themselves and their families. And once you can start to like view the world through that framework, it gets really hard to not be viewing it through that framework. Economics for me was worth studying because after I studied that, other fields started to seem a lot more approachable. I could like pick up a public health book and even though I don't really understand anything about public health or diseases or biology, I can say, oh, I, I kind of understand like why people would behave this way. And now I know the part that I don't know. And let me just focus on answering that question. And studying something in undergrad that gives you enough confidence to be able to jump into other fields that you really don't understand is a great way to make sure that you're not really just studying one field, but studying many fields. And I think that the best economists and the best economic papers tend to happen um, oftentimes at the edge of economics and other fields. And whether you're approaching these questions from an economics perspective or a public health perspective or a government perspective or a philosophy perspective or a math perspective, I think everybody should be taking at least a couple of microeconomics courses, a couple of game theory courses, and learning how to think about optimization. It's one of the most useful tools that I've found. And you must know that Ben optimizes everything. You know, optimizing his client's work or optimizing their academic work is just one thing. Optimizing their entire life is a completely different aspect. And we can maybe go into one, one if Ben wants to share all the different ways he optimizes his life. It's truly remarkable. It's a role model for all of us. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, I do have a bad habit of trying to apply economic economics in places where maybe it really shouldn't be applied. I, I've been working on redesigning the bathroom in very small ways recently, yeah. <laughs> was, was the example I was giving wrong the other day. And I don't know how to think about designing a bathroom from any tool set besides like behavioral economics, basically, which is the bathroom is a place to get me to do things that are good for the body, healthy things like brushing your teeth and, you know, scrubbing between your toes and not forgetting behind your ears. And the goal of designing a bathroom for me is to make a place that pleasantly makes you want to do the things that are good for you. Um, not fighting against your incentives, but figuring out what your incentives are, what your preferences are, and designing an environment that naturally makes you want to do the things that you know you should be doing in the long term. And I think economics is a pretty good way of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amazing. And I think this really reflects how diverse and broad that this field really is. It's almost like there's something for everyone, regardless of what field they're into, regardless of what they want to do in their lives. If you study economics, you'll find something of use. My next question is that 
what is it about economics that you wish you had known before you walked into into it? No, it's not all theory. Theory is important, but how we apply theory and how we think about theory is very, very relevant. And also how many different forms of economics exist. You know, we say things like behavioral economics, we think things like political economics, but also there's schools of thought within economics that is, you know, historical from the Keynesian thought of the classics and before to the new liberals today or those challenging the new liberal order today. So there is such a wide variety of economics that there is no one particular focus, but there's maybe one is dominant in the best universities and the most celebrated scholars, but that doesn't mean that they have a monopoly on the field. A monopoly on the truth, right? And so many of the greatest economists that I've been following in the past couple of years have been from these universities, but they've been misfits in their own universities, or they have been heterodox economics economists in other parts. All that to say that like the the goal must be the question you want to pursue. Economics is simply a tool, a way of thinking. The question takes priority and you can then get to those questions but with a variety of different frameworks within economics itself right and so the one you see in your you know intermediate economics microeconomics class with basic theories may not get you there and you may think economics is not for me but that's not true because if you were to read other books on political economy or on other on variable science or game theory those frameworks might get you to the answer for that particular question and so that requires some a little bit of like searching within yourself on the library i guess yeah, and if I may add something to the excellent remarks that Gorang made, uh, I guess it's important to realize that economics is not just supply and demand. And this is not just some naive mistake that high school students do. I, I read like non-economists write books about you know economic things. For instance, Fukuyama, who is a great political scientist, in his book Identity, in his first chapter, he talks about how uses the whole field of economics to supply and demand and critiques the entire field. It's too rational. These underlying you know, frameworks are not very consistent, which is fair critique, but that's not what economics is all about. For instance, in 2019, the Nobel Prize was economics was awarded to Esther Duflo, Michael Kramer, and Abhijit Banerjee. And it was based on their work in microeconomics. It was a microeconomic approach to solving small problems through randomized controlled trials. And this is not something that, you know, a typical high school student would associate with economics, right? Uh, we, uh, you know, economic student would not think of, you know, separating, uh, you know, groups into two different groups, giving an intervention and finding the results, quantifying it. And that's, 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 you know, prescription for policy, perhaps, you know, with some caveats. So economics is a really broad field. And there are some underlying assumptions underpinning the basic theoretical frameworks when you were to read in intermediate macroeconomics or microeconomics, but it's much more than that. And it's fundamentally as has been echoed before it's a framework that you embrace to think about things which has its flaws but it's such a broad field and you can apply it to so many different contexts that you one should not think of economics as you know just intermediate micro class that would teach you supply and demand is much more than that yeah. i i love these comments i i think tarun's point about Economics not being as limiting as most textbooks or courses would make it seem is spot on. I think it goes a lot further than that. I think the places where you object with the textbook are the places you have an opportunity to make an impact in the field. The, the first ever economics class I took, it, it wasn't actually like at a school I was enrolled in. I was in high school and the, the high school economics class didn't seem as exciting, but I, I would live near uh, UC Davis, which is a fabulous university in Northern California. Uh, and they had a large economics lecture there and I knew somebody on campus. So I asked if she could lend me her textbook and I snuck into the back of the lecture hall because there was like, 2000 kids and nobody notices or cares. And after class, I, I, was, I was fascinated by the lecture. I had some questions. So you know, I joined the line of 30 students at the front 
And the first student in line, she she seemed like a little bit upset by the lecture. And she asked this question. She was like, look, you know, you said all these things about how we should be uh, able to get more money and why getting you know more money and more resources is always a good thing. But like, you know, why can't we just be living with less money? Like, why does that have to be the assumption? Mm-hmm. And the instructor, I think, responded, you know, the way I've heard most economists respond to missing the point like you know this is you know assuming that we do want money here's how we go about getting it we don't really need to like think about whether or not you want it plus you know the world's usually better with more money you can get more things you know less people in poverty and just kind of dismissed it and she left kind of upset and i never saw her return to lecture she i think would have been a fabulous researcher because every economist up until that point was really taking the assumption that you need to be getting more money as given and any research that questions that is really valuable in in the last decade there's been some macroeconomic research which finds that people's perception of recessions is dependent on their prior income before the recession. This sounds kind of obvious. If you're making a ton of money and all of a sudden you lose a bunch of money, you're really sad and angry about it and you want the government to do anything you can to stop the recession. If you, for instance, were always making $40,000 and you keep making $40,000, you're perfectly happy. But if you go from 70 to 40, you're a lot less happy, Mm -hmm. which means that if you're a government that's trying to make people happy rather than to maximize the sum of money in their accounts, it might actually make sense to go for growth policies that have a lower variance in your income, even if it results in a lower mean, because you don't get sudden shocks that make people unhappy. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly, I think, you know, kind of the economic conception of the question that she brought up. And I think those are where the most exciting parts of economics come in, is researchers that say, here's an assumption that every professor in every field or every subfield in economics is making. What would happen if we interrogated that a little bit more? So I think if you're somebody that takes an economics class and you're annoyed by some of it or you want to argue with some of it, you should study a lot more economics. And if you like it all and it all sounds great and you have no objections, it might be a dangerous field for you to study. <laughs> Just to corroborate what um, Ben said, it's, it's one of my favorite stories and it's been covered in the New Yorker. Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, I think it was late 90s or early 2000s, he hadn't taken an economics course. He, was not an, he wasn't an e- economist, but his, he created, he literally created the field of behavioral economics because he was a psychologist and he used those frameworks to answer questions that were relevant even in the field of economics. And now that field is one of the most, I think you would agree that it's one of the most exciting fields within economics um, at the moment, but it didn't exist. Ben has absorbed that field. Yeah. Like Ben's been like, out of most people that I know, Ben is focused most on behavioral economics. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it didn't exist uh, in its current shape yeah. 20, 30 years ago. And a psychologist came up with this entirely new field and won the Nobel Prize. So it speaks volumes about how broad the field is and how, how, as Ben said, there's many avenues for you to, you know, change the field. But also economics is not the end all, right? With the, the discussion that Ben just did about money and 70 to 40,000 and the relative happiness that comes from that. Even history, I took a class on Chinese history this semester, and in the 80s and 90s, it, it is assumed that if China was growing from the 80s onwards, that all of 80s, 90s, 2000 must have been fantastic for the country. But in a popular accounts, in a diary accounts, this is historical, personal diary accounts that we're reading of people within moving from 70s to 80s and how things have changed. We're seeing just the impact of rural people and migrant labor as their homes and their farming are no longer viable. You know, before it was not viable, but at least there was stability and, you know, inc- and things like education and health were somewhat like, you know, given for, for, for granted. And of course, at a very basic level, there were still concerns of famines, but from 80s onwards, being a farmer, there was just not enough jobs for being a farmer. And so when people had to leave their towns, how much of a stress and how much of an account that had for those people and how many millions of people are still migrant labor in China without many, you know, because of the of the hukou, they still have many of those people across the country don't have 
uh, protections from the urban governments that you know that type of analysis we don't do in economics instead in economics you would say or major economics would say people should move to areas where mobility is good and people should move to areas where people are most productive right and so moving to urban cities is always good because people are going to be more productive there however for most farmers across time being able to live a normal happy life you know with basics of their living conditions sorted in their own land is very important you know their land to them is sacred and so how we think about that economics doesn't really uh, answer or doesn't think about and this is where you know other subjects who focus on individual uh, through diary accounts or personal memoirs much more carefully like history helps provide a better or clearer picture for me personally i see economics as um, a bridge between math and history and sometimes it focuses too much on math and sometimes focuses too much on history but ideally you would want to in my perception you would want to whenever you're in a situation where there's too much math you would want to like add in some of the history either directly from a history class or a history books or in the comics themselves so that's another approach on the same topic can we continue yeah thank you so much okay my next question is about in your experiences so far who has been your favorite professor and what has been your favorite class at Harvard and i do understand that it might be really hard because of the phenomenal people there at Harvard but i'm sure that there must be somebody who has been really impactful for you personally okay for me it's not a professor at Harvard even though there's been so many incredible ones the most influential economist to me is Ajmogul and that's his, actually his first book like nice no, first book but his his initial very popular book why nations fail was the first book i ever read in economics and it was given to me by my high school economics teacher when i didn't know him at that time that book like captivated me and that was like why i was super excited to come to college and study economics it took me a while to actually start studying economics because what that book was saying and how it was approaching things was very different the way classes as i mentioned already was discussing so the way that book provided a framework for how to think about growth and economic growth was incredibly enticing his recent book narrow corridor has also been similarly influential actually maybe even more influential to me and this semester i audited his course he doesn't teach a undergraduate course at MIT or Harvard but since he's an MIT professor he teaches a a grad course and so i was auditing that course mostly i don't think i understood all the math that he was teaching every lecture but the goal there was using some behavioral economics i was using as a fixed commitment device such that every lecture i would go i would read all the meetings at least so i had the best possible chance of understanding the model and that he talked about in class which was really exciting because through that class i was able to read almost everything he's written uh, not everything he has written too much but close it took a few years yeah it took it took me some time to get there but i think he was the most influential after him another turkish economist danny wadrick i took his class this semester i would say that was his my favorite class uh, along with robert robert unger but danny wadrick stands out to me because most economists especially those who become really famous and are really celebrated have very complex ideas and you know speak in many complex frameworks and mathematical logic and everything danny wadrick is the only economist i know who's trying to answer really challenging questions but doing it in the most most simplistic basic way possible it almost sounds like it sounds too stupid you know really just like sitting there looking at how he's broken down everything it seems almost ridiculous but danny wadrick's slides you know he has you know, 10 or 12 slides and in that he captures so much it's a relation into how he thinks so that was another economist and because i have too many and i want to make one more Uh, actually, I want to do two more. Uh, oh my God. His other professor, the other professor of the same class, political economy and its future, 
it's Roberto Unger. Roberto Unger is the absolute opposite of Danny Roderick. Roberto Unger is very clear and, cons- and precise, but speaks in very flowery theoretical language, which makes it very hard to understand. But once we spend enough time trying to understand what he's saying, the framework he approaches for what we should be striving towards as an alternative future really opens the imagination for what is possible for our economy. And that's really important when we have only seen certain number of cases in the real world. And so, yeah, I'll just stick there. And I want to mention my current professor also, Karen Dennis. The reason why it's really important to mention her is because she was a professor of practice. And so she was working in, in, in the government for many years before she came to Harvard. And her class is taught very differently than any other class in the economics department because it's she's going through like step by step how the French crisis happened. By understanding how the French crisis happened, we can have a much more frank discussion for what went wrong in economics and why they couldn't understand what was going on. Uh, and she does it in a way, again, very simplistically. So you really are able to feel all of the different levers of the economy. So I really enjoy all these four professors, but by far, Ajay Moglu is. completely agree with you. I'm going to be attaching one of Professor Danny Roderick's articles on prematurity industrialization in the show notes. It's such a fantastic, brilliant, yet simple and accessible paper that even if you don't have a background in economics you can definitely read it and understand it so check that out yeah yeah <laughs> so if we can move on to me my answer would be a lot briefer and i'll mention one professor and one class so my favorite class at harvard so far has been the british empire which is a history mm-hmm. course offered by professor maya jasano I bring this up because it's also relevant to the discussion about economics that we're having, that economics is such a broad field. And so the course was really interesting in two senses. And the reason Maya Jasnoff was such an influential personality in my life was because I went to an office house, and this, this class happened in the fall of 2021. 2020, I guess, fall of 2020 when the pandemic happened. And because of that, the class was kind of truncated. There weren't many people around. It was a Zoom semester. So I used to go to office hours and Incidentally, nobody else ever seemed to come to office house. So I had like an entire hour long chunks every week where I would discuss, you know, like the method of history with the professor, like what history was. You know, we 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 discussed the Hegelian concept of you know history, but it's a as a you know progressive sort of overflow towards more rationality and freedom, etc. And we discussed, you know, should counterfactuals be you know a legitimate sort of tool to discuss history. We discussed Neil Ferguson's work, etc. And I sort of imbibed a lot of wisdom. Like, and wisdom is something you can't really teach. Like, it's something that you understand yourself. It's not knowledge. And I, I thought talking to her gave me that wisdom to sort of put historical themes into context for our present, for, for our present and the future. Because if you don't know where you're coming from, you won't really appreciate where you're going. So that was really interesting. And another dimension of the class that I really liked was because we discussed imperialism through the lens of capitalism. We had to read Thomas Hobson, which was, I would highly recommend. His, his work is, I think, the pioneering work in terms of connecting capitalism with imperialism. And I'm sure you've heard of the phrase, you know, capitalism is the highest form of imperialism that was said by Vladimir Lenin. And Lenin was hugely influenced by Hobson's work. So we discussed, you know, how Britain expanded into India and how much of it was because of trade, was because of economics. So, you know, it ties back to economics again. And I so through understanding historical forces, through understanding what events unfolded in the past and what developments happened, it's it's really easy to not easy, but it makes it much easier for you to understand these abstract concepts. You know, it's easy to say, okay, imperialism is caused by capitalism. But once you do the readings, once you sort of you know, uh, get into the uh, minds of people working on those questions at that time, 
it, it becomes much more easier to comprehend what these abstract ideas are trying to tell you. So yeah, overall, like really understood how history worked, mm-hmm. really impacted wisdom and, you know, gained new insights on um, economics through the course. That's why I really liked it. And you can take it. And just like a note to self and a note for anyone who's listening, go to your office hours, you would have an incredible <laughs> chance to meet your yeah. pro- professors and gain their wisdom, which you would probably not find anywhere else. I These learned from Tarun and I spent a lot more time in office hours this semester because Tarun was like, go. And I was like, yes. You went to ask him on his office hours. I did. Yeah, that was unbelievable. I was dying. <laughs> yeah, go to office hours for professors whose classes you're not taking. You yeah. never get to hear their ideas. Yeah, yeah. that's true as well. It's very true. Anyways, for my classes, I've, I've got two to share. And oh, two. I'm picking two because I think what's kind of remarkable about them, besides the fact that it's less than Garong's, is that both of the classes I'll talk about are incredibly similar. Like the, the, the pedagogical structure of these two econ classes, I'd call my two favorite econ classes I've taken at Harvard, are they're almost identical. And I think it's unsurprising that the instructors came to the same conclusion about how to teach. The first one I took was, I think this must have been freshman spring. I took Edward Glaser's Econ 1011A, which is- Freshman spring, sophomore fall. Sophomore fall. Come oh. on, dude. What is this? Where's my calendar? <laughs> like, thing? What is this? You're wrong. It's a good check on, on my authenticity. Uh, sophomore fall, I took Edward Glaser's Economics 1011A, which is Incredible. the Quantitative Intermediate Microeconomics Track, which, which is like a really long title, which makes it sound like it could be a really specific class. But it's the most broad, like comprehensive introduction to economics that I've seen mm-hmm. at, at any school. And what he does every lecture is a very specific formula to the class. The first like 20 minutes of lecture, he starts with a pretty Socratic examination of a real world question. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, how should we be thinking about regulating carbon emissions? Mm-hmm. Or when should the government collect taxes, if ever? Or how should we structure insurance markets? Some, some really basic question, like, what do we want out of our insurance? Why does insurance exist? And starting with the most real basic questions and just asking the audience, why do we have insurance? Mm-hmm. And then somebody will toss out an answer. Um, like, oh, we, we have insurance so that, you know, you, you don't lose money in bad events. And he'll say, no, that's wrong. It's not because you don't lose money in bad events, because you have to lose money in a good event. And now everything's a bad event. It's a very unclear way to explain it. And he's very unafraid to say you're just absolutely wrong because he spent 10,000 hours thinking about this question and has quite decisively and accurately concluded that you're wrong. And he will say you're wrong until somebody actually guesses it right. So you learn to try to stop thinking in a certain way and start thinking in the way that gets Edward Glaser to say you're right, which is just about the best feeling when you're an undergrad in Econ at Harvard. <laughs> and by the end of that class, I think just from the first 20 minutes of every section, everybody's kind of developed this like linguistic muscle for answers that constitute legitimate insights into incentives and behavior versus answers that are kind of proximate and superficial discussions of why something might seem to happen. We try to get towards the ultimate answers and the ultimate reason that something exists before you even begin adding numbers or models or theories or citations or anything like that. You need to understand the real world first. And then once you finish that 20 minute portion of the class, he switches over and starts bringing in crazy amounts of numbers. Because once you've identified the specific problem really accurately, we are trying to maximize uh, people's happiness with respect to two input variables, which is how much money you invest in good state 
states for insurance versus bad states for insurance. Now let's take the most complicated math equations we can that will optimize those three numbers together. And then the class just descends if you haven't taken too much calculus. Yeah. But that part's honestly like not that important. Like most people in the yeah. class, I think, don't end up using that math afterwards. You forget how to do your Lagrangian derivatives, oh, but you really? don't really forget how to determine like what's the structure of the core problem and how to figure out the precise thing that you're optimizing. And then how to figure out at the end of the class, what are the conclusions that you've come to? Like, what are the fundamental relationships? What policies could you enact based on what you've discovered? What are the uncontroversial things that don't depend on your political beliefs or your height or your gender or your religion that are just ways that we can all agree that the world could be better with a few small switches? And that to me is really what econ was about. And it gets you into that mindset just immediately and through a bit of painful p-sets. The second class was a totally different program and took a very similar structure. It was Economics 2030, which is a PhD field mm-hmm. seminar in behavioral economics that I actually took with Karan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Partially took with Ryan. I, I think I did too. COVID hit during this. We all kind yeah, of slacked yeah. off at some point. So I, I will admit that I, I definitely did not get as much out of the class as I could have. And even with that, it's still one of my favorite classes I've taken. And they did the same thing, but on a much more specific and I think graduate level scale, which is every week you start with a core problem in economics, like a paradox Mm -hmm. that researchers were unable to resolve for a decade. Why do humans behave this way? Or a paradox about why the market works in a certain way. People will buy products associated with famous individuals. If there's a cereal box that has a famous person on it, you buy more. Economists have found this profoundly confusing for a very long time. And you start by reasoning about that problem, not from an economics perspective, but just like, what on earth is going on here? Why is this happening? And then you look into the theories that have been proposed by other researchers, and then you figure out, okay, here's the theory, here's the math for the theory, here's what it means, and then how can we empirically test if this theory is valid and compare it to these other theories? Where do their predictions converge? Where do their predictions diverge? Mm-hmm. And if we look at real world data and we look at those, those divergences, does the data suggest that we should be using model A or model B? And in that, if you're trying to learn how to integrate economics as opposed to build up economic models, is just about the most important skill set. Looking at the core question, assessing the theories, understanding where they agree and where they disagree, and looking at where they disagree and seeing what the real world supports, and then adjusting your beliefs in accordance. So I think it's the same structure of saying real world problem, methodology, and then bring it into the real world. And one of those classes teaches you how to build models and the other one teaches you how to decide models and apply models. Thank you all for sharing all of your classes. That's really wonderful. Next question is, if there's another student like me who wishes to become an economist someday, what would you recommend them? Any skills that they should build on or any advice for them? Uh, Okay, I'll take that one. Start working with data, start working with code, and start working with probability and statistics as soon as you can. Look, if you look at what economists are doing these days, if you look at the research that the top economists are publishing, they're using methods that are really similar to the ones being used 10 years ago in many cases. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a lot of really repetitive structured economic research that happens with, you know, you, you pick your data set and you pick your predictors and you run a linear model and you interpret the coefficients and you interpret your results based on the p-values and you conclude something about the world. Yeah. And it's a f- style of research that is quickly um, going out of fashion. 
which is surprising given that empirics is getting more and more empirical and more and more interested in data since we have more data and can answer more questions and test more models with data. Right. And the reason that's happening is because there is a kind of generation, I think, of you know the new fresh economists that are coming out of PhD programs largely in the last five or 10 years that are coming at it from very different perspectives. People who worked in the private sector in data science, people who studied um, statistics and math and then decided to go into economics afterwards as kind of an afterthought that have what are truly much more powerful technical tool sets than what most of academic economics is using, but are using them to answer the same questions. And as a result, they're doing them better. The reason I mentioned this, which is you know some really high level thing in the field, which seems like where you shouldn't be starting the question of how to determine your own studies, is because I think it's exactly how you should determine your own studies. You don't want to garner skill sets for the way that economists are currently working. Mm -hmm. You want to garner skill sets for the ways that economists will wish they were working when you graduate. You want to be the person that has the skill set the top economists don't have. That's how you avoid having to work under people for too long and trying to get your new ideas out as fast as possible and trying to criticize the field as much as you can and then trying to turn that criticism into building and coming up with new ideas. So I would say, you know, it's my personal belief that that tends to be computer science, data science, and statistics and economics, plus maybe some more pure math. If you have a different belief, though, what's more important is look at what the most exciting things happening in the field are, and then try to think what's going to happen next, and then try to work on that. Is a good structure of, I think, how to figure out what skills you need in, in most fields, but especially economics. Okay, I have to add, that is, if you, that is, Ben helping you optimize to become an economist one day in terms of being an economist as a profession. Yes. But that's very important. And if that's one of your goals, that is absolute top, top advice. But there's another question that you must ask is why to become an economist. And that question has to be, and in my opinion, at least, you should ask a question that you want economics to solve for you, right? And so the question that you're trying to solve is very important. And to answer that question before economics gets into the mud, but before economics gets into the mix, you should, in my opinion, have a very solid grounding in history without understanding the historical background of the context that you want to potentially answer your question. It is very challenging. If I you know, didn't take American history before coming to college and was studying social science in, in, in American university, it'd be very, very challenging for me to understand the context behind some of the questions that are being discussed in class and the which my peers are asking and also how we're approaching it in school. And also history enables you to go be look beyond the math because sometimes the math is absolutely concrete and therefore you're like, oh, this must be this, like this property rights is always good. Yeah, economists like, yes, property rights always good. Right? Right? But historical examples show that we have managed to grow economy without property rights. Right? And why was that the case? And that helps you answer and build new and more exciting models and helps you use your statistical methods in different questions that you may not have known if you hadn't studied history. So the way I answered your initial question about what I'm studying is America and China initially, and now India. When I say that, it means that like now my next focus is to learn the Indian history properly before I delve into economics. And so that's how I my, my personal approach towards it, especially because economic courses have under under invest in historical learning for economic students so you personally have to invest yourself uh, in historical either readings somewhere whatever totally go for it or classes i mean it turns an economist who said his favorite course of the british empire historical class you know i've taken entire year of chinese history and it's been you know the best best experiences uh, of my time and it would be impossible to study china without learning the history yeah and maybe just to, to hop on that in like a more general point, I, I think what Garong's kind of getting at is why you shouldn't just be looking at economics, 
is that economics is a discipline whose goal is to answer questions. It's not really to pose questions. So yeah. if you shouldn't study economics without having a way of posing questions. And I think that tends to come from disciplines like history, philosophy, literature, politics and political theory, sociology, all of these fields that are saying, what are the problems with the real world? Yeah. And then if you think that those domains aren't doing the best job of answering those questions, then pull in your economics tool set and get to work. Right. That's, that's absolutely brilliant piece of advice. And just before we move on to the next question, I would make a co comment that my personal favorite economist of probably all time is Professor Nathan Nunn at Harvard. He has inspired me so much. His work in economic history has been incredibly brilliant and insightful for me. So just, just before we move on, I have a quick so story to share, which is basically that I was once reading an article by Al Jazeera, which was titled Guinea Re Residents Refusing Ebola Treatment. You know, it sounds a bit irrational. Why won't they accept this treatment for the disease which they are facing? I naively wondered at the time. But the article didn't provide any context and just reported this resentment of the residents. So like most people who read the article, I walked away condemning the locals of the regions for doing so. However, it wasn't much later when I watched a lecture on YouTube by Professor Nathan Nunn called History, Cultural Context and Development Policy that I realized the full story. You see, the residents of that area in Guinea resented the medical staff right now because nearly a century before, in the 1900s, when Africa was colonized, the people living in Guinea were treated as lab rats for sleeping sickness treatment at gunpoint. Moreover, these trials were said to have caused blindness, either partial or complete, to nearly 20% of the people of Guinea. Now, when the grandchildren of these people are faced in a similar situation, they are bound to resist the Western medicines. So this story just puts into perspective and reiterates the importance of learning history and how important it is to understand the context of the problem which we are trying to solve that history provides. Absolutely. You know, just yeah. because, since you mentioned Professor Nathan Nunn, I think you would mm -hmm. like the fact that I worked as a research assistant for him this past semester on India. In fact, this was this was his first work in India. Yeah. <laughs> yes, just putting on the chat, OMG. Yes. And I don't know why that isn't just <laughs> said. <laughs> Listeners should know Yasha's excitement. Yeah. <laughs> We'll get you connected afterwards, don't worry. <laughs> All right. Oh, I, I have behavioral thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I am less enthusiastic about history than Garong in general, not because history isn't important. It's absolutely crucial. But I tend to think of history as being more like the, the data input. Mm -hmm. And what's more important is the model for processing historic data into present reality. You don't need to be a researcher who's only worked in that community and understand that history yes. better than anybody else in the world. I mean, Nathan Nunn works in a bunch of different communities and then learns about what's happening there. Mm -hmm. What makes Nathan Nunn a good economist is he's really good at figuring out historical models that might convert histories and in places into behavior. And I, I think that that tool set, you can learn by reading history and noticing trends. I also think that you can learn it more explicitly in some cases from economics under behavior and evolutionary game theory. Because a lot of the reason that history matters is that people are not 
perfectly rational in the sense that at every living second, they're not saying what is the optimizing choice I can make right now, because it turns out that's biologically impossible for humans. You can only think about so many things in your prefrontal cortex at a time. So if you want to be using it for one thing and you have other tasks to be doing at the time, like you're making a phone call and doing dishes and like reading economics at the same time, as I know Yash does, you have to be using habits to manage at least a couple of those tasks, which are pre-made associations. You're not figuring out the best way to wash this dish. You know, you take a sponge and you scrub in circular motions. The reason this matters is because it's the reason that history impacts things, which is people don't just experience history and then come to the present moment, like tabula rasa, ready to make mm -hmm. a fresh decision. Mm -hmm. They've inherited a bunch of rational habits, mm -hmm. habits they learned rationally by experiencing and then needing to optimize in response. Mm -hmm. But habits have two interesting traits in evolutionary game theory. Well, many more than that, but two in this case. One is they have a lag period, which is you might learn a habit and then the external, you know, thing that caused you to need to learn that habit, like having dirty dishes, for instance, went away. And even after, long after your dishes stopped being dirty, you might still kind of, you know, want to, you know, take the sponge and do a circular motion. Probably not the best example, but we can certainly think of people who maybe when they're young learn that you can like get attention in a certain way. And that becomes part of their behavioral trait as an adult, even though it's no longer useful because it's what they're used to doing. Similarly, these behavioral traits also exhibit spillover which is you might learn them for a really specific domain. Like for instance, I learn a specific way of interacting with my siblings when I'm young, but if those are the only people that you're interacting with, you end up learning that as a trait for interacting with humans. Mm -hmm. And then you accidentally end up treating other people outside of your household the same way that you treat your siblings. This is part of how we develop our personalities. And this is exactly what happens in history. You as a community or an individual might learn how to process a certain event. Like for instance, somebody might have showed you good data that they were going to help you and it turned out that you didn't get helped. And you learn a really rational value, which is sometimes when people tell you they're going to help you, they don't help you. I don't think it's fair to call this irrational, but even if somebody comes now wanting to actually help you, the question that you're asking as an economist cannot be the same question that you're asking for another community. Mm -hmm. The question isn't what would theoretically be valuable for these theoretical humans. It's we have real people. Our goal isn't to figure out what's good for them, but to figure out what habit they'd be willing to enact that would be good for them mm -hmm. and how we can encourage them to take that habit and want to take that habit and be participating in the process. And once you know that that's the question that you're asking, and once you know that those are kind of the limits of the question and the limits of your understanding, it now becomes a task of let's read the history, let's learn you know, what kinds of habits this community might have, what kinds of lag effects there might be, what kind of spillover effects there might be. And now you can have you know, your one month stint as a historian and then try to go into actually applying your economic tool set. I completely agree. This is a, a much more comprehensive framework. In my experience, however, the data input, you know, is very important. For many empirical questions, we don't even, we can't answer any of the empirical questions because we don't have the data. And the same thing in economics, a lot of questions we can't answer because good data, in this case, good history, is very important. Without good history, you know, a lot of things are very blurry and end up in messy situations. So the reason why I'm stressing good good history and background, especially the question I'm asking or trying to answer about, like, how do you get jobs for many people in the future, it you know, that having the historical background is important for the data input. But then once you have the data input, it's just data, then your the models and the economy of thinking and how do you approach it is very, very critical. In my experience in colleges, history is, especially economists, economic students kind of neglect the importance of history, which is why like I found it to be, because I didn't know about it either till I 
started reading it, I was like, oh my God, this makes my economic content so much better. But if the economics department did not neglect to share as much as they do, I would be, you know, I wouldn't have to mention it <laughs> uh, because <laughs> your approach is absolutely accurate. And that's how you should be approaching uh, any given question. All right, that's some fabulous piece of advice from everybody. Thank you so much. My next question is actually directed towards Ben. I know you, you talked about behavioral economics. You just talked about the behavioral aspect of what I said. And you also brought up the word, which I find really in, interesting called irrational. So my question to you is, what exactly is rationality? I mean, economists work on finding things that are rational, things that are irrational. Do we actually understand or know what rationality means? I love this question. Yeah. Wow. More people should ask this question. I'm glad that you're asking this question. Rationality is not a term that's worth defining on its own. Because if we give a ne- definition, somebody's going to say, wait a second, but I have this other definition that's useful in this other case, so shouldn't it be that definition? And, and that's because definitions of words are really, we have a concept we need to apply somewhere, and let's make sure we all know what that concept is before we apply it. This is unnecessarily linguistic and epistemic because it's a really hard question to answer. So we have to be really careful about how we phrase the question. The reason we want to talk about rationality in economics and in philosophy and in all of these beautiful cognitive scientific domains is because the goal is to do the goal. If you're a human and you want to do something, you should do the thing. If you believe something's moral, you should act morally. If you believe you should make money, you should make money. If you want to have friends, you should have friends. If you want to do things that you don't want to do, you should do things that you don't want to do. These are really confusing ways of framing goals. You have goals that seem self-defeating, goals that have nothing to do with measurable ideas. And we need a definition of rationality that works across economics when we're talking about people being irrational at investing, but also works in psychology when we're talking about people having irrational responses to external prompts, and also works in philosophy when we're talking about rationally integrating your worldviews into your actions as a way of applying your beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I like to think about rationality as being whatever set of goals that you think you could agree as being your goals. And if you do those things to the best of your ability with the best of your information and the best of your intent and the best of your biology and the best of whatever constraints you have around you, Mm -hmm. then you're behaving rationally. Where exactly you want to draw that line might depend. Some people might say it's irrational not to take a medication that's good for you because it's good for you. But if you didn't take it, and presumably you want things that are good for you, that's probably because you have a reason to believe that it's not good for you, or you have a different definition of what's good for you. The reason there's a lot of skepticism in many cases around behavioral economics is it can sometimes seem very patronizing in the sense that we tell people what is and isn't good for them, which is really weird because nobody knows what's good for somebody more than that person themselves. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't phrase the question that way. Like, for instance, we might find that people systematically invest in a way that yields a lower return rate than they could get than if they invested in a different manner. Mm -hmm. Finance is a great way of talking about really objective outcomes because there's so much data. It's so empiric. We know what a win is and we know what a loss is. Mm -hmm. And people are bad investors. We know that. They mess up in countless numbers of ways. Mm -hmm. In this case, it makes sense to just say, look, 
people are bad at this because you were raised in a way that your decision-making principles weren't trained on financial markets. They were trained on what to eat for breakfast. They were trained on how to interact with friends at school and how to interact with your parents and your siblings. And this is a task that we can kind of give up to other people. If we know that humans want money and we know that humans don't have beliefs that are, you know, kind of aligned with making money, we can offload that to people whose jobs it is to figure out how to do it. So now we have kind of a few different conceptions of rationality. There is how do you know what you want and how do you act upon what you want? And then the, the final one to like think about is how do you act upon what you feel like you want? And this is kind of what happens in, in trading. So let me, let me give you a good example from trading. People like ask me questions about the stock market a lot and they'll be like, oh, like, should I buy or sell this asset? It, it's gone down $10 or it's gone up $10. And the response that I give is the same response I think anybody who studies a lot of finance would give, which is, I have no idea what the answer is, but I do know that how much it went up or went down shouldn't be a part of the decision. Because that has absolutely nothing to do with how you're going to maximize the amount of profit you're going to make. I won't go into that one in too much depth, but this is a very Googleable explanation if you'd like more info on it. And yet people say, oh no, because I don't want to sell things at a loss. That means I did bad on this trade. I try to like, you know, win all of my trades and it feels bad when I lose a trade is, is what most people kind of sense about trading. This is irrational in the sense that maybe you shouldn't feel bad because you could make more money if you didn't feel bad and then acted differently. But once we know that you experience this emotion and most people find changing their emotions to be really difficult, we now have to ask, okay, I could sell this stock at a loss and maybe make an extra dollar but I'm gonna feel bad. And I feel amount of bad that's worth more than a dollar. So it's actually rational for me, emotionally speaking, to make a trade that loses me money as long as I don't feel the pang of loss, which is worth more to me than money. So in this case, I think that when you're talking about rationality in your own life, I'm not really trying to make, thing, make decisions that are theoretically good for outcomes, but make me unhappy. I'm trying to make my preferences things that make me make decisions that are good. And then in cases where I can't do that, like let's say for instance, I just always experience pain when I sell a stock at a loss, I'm gonna stop buying and selling stocks. I'm just gonna buy one mutual fund and let it sit there because now I have somebody whose full-time job it is to buy and sell stocks and they have to feel that emotional pain and I just get more money and feel no emotional pain. So three types of rationality. What gets you the best empirical outcome? What is the best habit or strategy you can learn for that empirical outcome? And then what makes you feel happy and feel like you're doing the right thing in the moment, independent of habits and independent of you know, what you're trying to get at the end? And I think that any decision-making process, if you're trying to decide something to do in your personal life, if you're trying to decide what the public should do, like a political decision or a vaccination decision, you should be figuring out first off, which type of rationality is it? And then second, how do I maximize for that type of rationality and how do I make sure that the people who are working on this problem are rational for that type of problem? That was really insightful and comprehensive. Just to follow up to, to that. So what you're saying is that rationality is not a binary thing and it can differ from a person to another? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rationality is highly variant because rationality is behavior and emotion and behavior and emotion are responsive to biology and circumstance. Your habits and your reactions to things that happen around you, which will motivate your behavior, are based on your DNA and how you grew up. And people have different DNA, not by a lot, but by a little bit. And much more importantly, people have very different situations growing up. 
And those two combined mean that you're going to have different preferences and emotions, and therefore you'll be better or worse at making different types of decisions, or probably more precisely, there will be decisions where the way that you define the objective aligns or doesn't align with the way that the rest of the world defines that objective. And that results in heterogeneity and preferences, and that results in heterogeneity and rationality. Thank you so much. One of the one one of the most important authors in terms of in my in my Harvard career when I went from not studying economics to officially becoming a studying economics as my concentration was Justin Lin. He's a, a Chinese economist. He came over in December of my sophomore year, and the book he recommended us was this book called that. He's written many, many books and, you know, his ideas, you may have questions or you, you may not agree with, but this particular book was his, how he thinks about economics or his methodology of economics. Now that to me was hugely influential because it provided me a different way of thinking about it, which I actually had never even experienced. I mean, I had gone through a year and a half of college and never experienced any other thing. And one thing he said, like one, his, his explanation of rationality, which I personally really like is in economics, rationality is a Tao. He was using Chinese philosophy. Any economic phenomenon is the manifestation of rationality that is a decision maker's best choice under a specific condition based on what that person knows based on that person's biology based on that person's growing up historical backgrounds the economist's job is to observe that phenomenon build a theoretical model to explain the rationality behind the phenomenon uh, and achieve the goal as stated and and that is how personally i've understood rationality it's much short and incomplete version of what ben said but the idea of having a particular goal and based on everything that you know and all your particular individual constraints, doing your best to get to that goal would be how Justin Lin would define rationality. Now, my next question is for Tarun, actually. So, Tarun, you said that you are somebody who is interested in political economics. Now, I haven't studied this field of economics. So, for myself and our listeners, can you please describe what political economics is and what is it about the field that interests you? I think Goran would be better able to answer this because he just took a course in political economy from Professor Onga and Roderick, but I can give you a brief introduction of how I got into this intersection of political science and economics. And it's because it fundamentally starts with my own upbringing in Nepal. Right? When I was growing up, my country was in the thick of a civil war. It was a Maoist revolution that was raging. It started in 1996. I was born in 1999, and it uh, ended in 2006. And because of that, Nepal, one of the main reasons why Nepal is such a poorly performing economy is because of that. And now we have a sort of patronage politics existing in our country where we have a semblance of democracy. I mean, monarchy was, there was a Hindu monarchy ruling our country until 2008. It existed for 250 years. It was pretty, it was not very democratic, but we sort of got democracy and there was a lot of hope, you know, there was a sense of triumph that oh, we've gotten democracy, you know, and now we're pushing that for development. I think all ethnic groups, all different, you know, factions within the society will experience that economic growth, those dividends that come from democracy, but that really didn't happen. Institutions were you know, fought with corruption and there wasn't a lot of, the, the hopes sort of died down. And now, you know, the COVID pandemic is sort of a great manifestation of how, on how Nepal is on the verge of being a failed state, practically. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we assume people tend to think of economics as a separate uh, field, and it is a separate field now because you know, it's so specialized, but economics did not exist as a field 
prior to the 18th century, like when Adam Smith was writing, and even after that. And he, he was, was a political economist. Yeah, he was a, yeah, yeah, so economics was actually called <laughs> political economy. So there was no economics. What preceded this is the, the proto version of economics was political economy, because yeah. economics is so intertwined with politics. You can't really uh, explain the concept of why some countries are rich versus why some are poor without deferring to some sort of political establishment, right? You know, these big questions like how does democracy, how does capitalism, you know, mesh with democracy? How does democracy create growth? Mm-hmm. And all these different questions, how do political institutions impact growth? In fact, Ase Molu, who has had such a huge influence on Gorang, you know, teaches a course at MIT, incredible economist, I think we'll get a Nobel Prize in the future, hopefully fingers crossed. Here. Yeah, so hopefully. he talks about how institutions impact economic growth in countries and institutions is a broad debt, you know, it's a $10 term for, you know, as rules and norms within a society that constrain human behavior and that result in certain incentives being preferred by certain individuals, you know, property rights, that's an institution, a democracy, that's an institution. And these things on the whole, at least for my interests and for my future purposes, these are the um, big questions that I'm trying to understand better. First of all, for my own sake, I you know, and maybe if I can understand it better, maybe put it to good use. But yeah, so fundamentally understanding how political institutions interact with the economy, how they engender certain outcomes, and how we can shape countries' policies and political institutions to be able to foster and to promote economic growth and not. You know, the, there's, okay, I mean, maybe I took, I think Gorang, Gorang would be able to no, explain no, this is great. much better. No, this is fantastic. And I think context, again, is very helpful in understanding why we love book economy. But for me, the way, the best way of understanding it is we might ask the question, how do we make a country grow or how do we solve inequality? And then three of us or the hundreds of economists out there might give like 10 policy outcomes and 10 policy goals, for, which would help us do that. But then the next question would be, okay, but then can we do it? And the answer will say, no, you know, politics is like this right now. This particular group is not going to allow this. This group is not going to allow that. Okay, so say, okay. So the, the question becomes, who has power? You know, how is power distributed, right? Why do certain groups have power? And how can we change the coalition of power in order to put the country or put the organization or put the entity on the particular policy path that we prefer? Now, this question may come from us who are interested in the overall aggregate growth of a country and the world, but the same question might be asked by someone who is you know, a Hindutva leader and might say, how do we get that path towards our policy direction, right? And now we have many different groups in this country who are trying to push the policy direction in their particular channel. And so political economy is to study who those agents are and what their incentives and are and how over time those incentives and power changes uh, and endowments for those particular groups change. And, and that's why we love democracy as a system because it's the only system where power is with the people uh, and distributed amongst the people and w- which has many problems itself but compared to the alternative of having power concentrated towards the very, very few, that is preferable, then we go uh, one step further and we say, okay, there's political power, there's also economic power, and once you have too much economic power concentrated among some people, what that what, is, what happens then? So this is what political economy is studying. Often helps understand why things happen, why things don't happen. You know, that's, for me, that was very important. And so Karen and I spent a lot of time reading books on, we pick up any country and then we read the political economy of X book. And recently, Karen recommended a book on the Hitler's economy and yeah. how did a country that had hyperinflation become 
you know, powerful enough to challenge all of Western Europe. I'm very excited to read that book. <laughs> yeah, and just to add, because this is contextual, because we, 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 Gorang and I, I'm a huge fan of Francis Fukuyama, who is a political scientist at Stanford. Yeah. And he became famous in 1989 because he wrote this essay forecasting practically the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's called The End of History. And since then, I think two years after that, he you made that into a book and his thesis you know sometimes it haunts him because everybody in, the, in any interview asks him oh, has yeah, history reached an end but so but <laughs> the reason I bring this up is because he so according to Francis Fukuyama in, 19, in 1989 before the Berlin Wall fell he said okay we had many competitors to system of liberal capitalist democracy you know communism fascism but all of them had internal inconsistencies that made them untenable and because of that they got destroyed it's sort of a Darwinian you know, evolution of ideas you know like democracy was the best idea and it's going to persist it's going to be the end of history when we when every country on the planet reaches liberal capitalist democracy and this was a huge political economy question right you know what what is the system that countries are going to embrace in the future and now china is sort of I mean, there's a, a lot of economists are not very optimistic about this model, you know, being embraced by China to be, you know, to persist for tens of, you know, tens of decades. Maybe in the near future, it will dismantle. We we don't really know. But so one of the main questions that Fukuyama sort of faces today is, you know, the the question of China, which is not a democracy, which does not have much rule of law. You know, there's not political checks on the power elites. So is that sort of system tenable? And Francis Fukuyama would say it's not tenable, you know, because mm-hmm. there will come a time when the main political leader would make bad decisions. This is called the bad emperor problem. That's what he says. And because of that, China's growth is not indefinite and sometimes it will come crashing down. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's many, many reasons, like there's many arguments that people make, but just give you a high level introduction of what political economy is. It could be questions like these, you know, what is the best political system to create the most economic growth? Mm-hmm. That was really insightful. Thank you so much. I can't say about the listeners, but I had no clue what political economy was. And it turns out to be, it's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it is, right? You know about oh, that. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, my next question is for Gora. In your research so far about the future of India's workforce, what's the most interesting thing that you have found out? I mean, as an Indian, <laughs> I'm personally very curious about this question. Like there's so much, there's, there's so much youth in this country Yet there's also so much unemployment, there's so much poverty, there's so much potential in the country. But then the question comes, how do we effectively utilize this potential that there is in this country? I actually started properly researching India like about since, you know, Sunday. So I don't think that I am on a <laughs> fair path. But what I will say is, it's not like my previous studies in America and China are not relevant to India. And somebody who I think is very helpful in explaining this, actually Unger, in his book, Knowledge Economy, and what he calls the inclusive vanguardism. What he argues, and what I think is also a very big problem in India, is that there is clusters in our economy where people with high human capital, which in effect means graduated often with degrees uh, in computer science or or in similar areas, where they can, as people, leverage today's most advanced form of technologies. So today's most advanced technologies are what? You know, you could say machine learning, artificial intelligence, the manufacturing biotechnology, all the highest forms of technology today there is a small group of Indians who have come out of our top colleges, who have studied computer science, who are in Bangalore or in Hyderabad, you know, are part of the startup scene, are part of those tech companies. They are, you know, developing uh, products that are in today's the top 
most advanced form of production. But there's a vast, vast majority of the labor force who has no capacity uh, in the near term to be able to join them, right? Until we get people to be working or sharing the returns, working or sharing the returns from the advanced form of production, which in today's case is technology and the highest technology, we're going to have we're going to have problems in terms of getting everyone employed. To give you an example, the normal way most country normal way most countries have grown is that they've had mass amount of their people work in manufacturing, right? So they directly were working in and sharing returns from the advanced form of production at that time, which was manufacturing, right? And if you count imperialism part of you know capitalist order, they were also working in army and you know dominating, conquering other countries. So they were working on both ends and they were sharing and working in the advanced form of production of that time. Today, but that requires a little education at that time. You know, if you're high school educated, maybe if you can work with your fingers and, and stand and work 14 hours a day, you would be part of it. Today, you have to, you know, no computer science or you know these type of technologies to be part of this thing. And I'm not saying everyone should be CS, obviously, but to to be able to utilize and enhance upon those uh, knowledge economy. And that's actually one of the reasons why we have seen, you know, we went from 1960s to today, when my dad was, was uh, born today, technology has dramatically changed, right? And we can say, look at the improvement across the world, but productivity across the country, across the world has actually like, you know, slowed down within the 90s and 70s, 80s, 70s, 90s to now compared to the century prior. Why is that? It's because, well, one of the major theories, and it's a big, big debate, but one of the major theories that Unger and Roderick would say is that too few people have been able to improve and utilize today's highest form of production, which is the highest technologies. And a lot more people are secluded from those from those production, from the technologies. And therefore, the returns are coming to a very small group of people. And therefore, productivity gains across the economy are, is not being able to reach. And that's how I would answer the concern for India as well, is that we have such a large portion of labor force that has not the capacity of working in the highest form of technology, but we have skipped the middle step, which is manufacturing, which we have discussed with Danny Roderick. And we need people to go and work in manufacturing until their children or till part of them can do vocational work or that children can be part of the more advanced form of production in the future. So that's that's the framework with which I'll use to understand India, but I haven't really studied India. <laughs> so, right now, so I can't give you any specific answers. Is it an excellent yeah. framework for sure? Yeah. Yeah, yeah just to add, add some some thoughts on that one. So I think like when you're talking about manufacturing as the historical source of national growth, that's not something special about manufacturing. Manufacturing is an example of a form of employment in which you can generate something of value, um, which an employer could value yeah. um, that doesn't require really specific skill sets and in which you yeah. can be trained and become valuable even if you were hired with no skills. Yeah. And that's what you need to be able to get growth is for people without skills to be able to get money, to be able to have money, to send their kids to school, to get skills, to be able to do these higher productivity jobs. Yeah. I think if you're going to look at how to create new growth plans though, it's not like manufacturing is like a novel concept. Yeah. It's because that is the history. It's presumably one that, you know, every bureaucratic member, every political member of the Indian government has considered or been involved with in some form. So if you want to look at trying to do better than we're doing right now, I'd be looking at what are other ways we can get people who don't have a lot of skills to be making money and producing something in some way. Absolutely. And that's how you get growth. And if you look at where that's come like most recently in India, for instance, uh, a great example is Swiggy, which I want to say created upwards of 5 million jobs in like a five year period, which isn't people manufacturing something, but it figured out, look, there's something that people in the market want. 
And then there's some capital, which is a SCUTI, which is not particularly expensive relative to the price of a delivery order. And there's not really any skills involved except for driving, which most people already have. So we can get people making money when they want to be making money at a pretty large scale. And the rate at which they were able to scale that is pretty insane. And the, I think, amount of oversight that's gone into worker standards has been a lot higher than what I've seen in comparable quickly growing manufacturing industries, where usually when you try to quickly scale an industry, it means that you lose the ability to ensure quality and to ensure fair treatment of workers. And I think jobs that come from technology are an unusual area where you have uh, safety and quality control that increase with scale. So if I was going to guess, I think, at where more of that growth is going to come from, or at least where I hope it will be able to come from, it would be technologies that enable people to use existing skills to produce value and that can scale without diminishing safety and quality. But the concern with Swiggy as, as the model for India's future, or I know, I know it's, a, it's just an example, is the problem is in the short run, we, for the country to grow its aggregate income, we have to also export. And the reason for that is income is still a relatively, you know, um, fixed number that over time grows and that happens. And therefore Swiggy's market will grow as India's overall income grows because people have more money to spend on food deliveries, right? But as long as Swiggy is just working to serve urban wealthy consumers, there is a limitation to how much this particular model can lead to major economic growth for the country. Therefore it is preferable. I know we don't have many, many options right now in the country, but it would be preferable if that large amount of workforce was building something that we were selling to outside people, as opposed to being part of the chain that is serving our own internal consumption, because there's limits to how much we will grow from that perspective. It is a fantastic way, as you pointed out, for uh, job creation. And, and that you know is very, very important for us in the future. But uh, it, it has limitations to how we can go forward. Additionally, there is no, another factor of to what till when we will accept these workers being gig employee workers. And that's like going to the next step uh, and asking like, are we, what type of formal employment requirements will we be discussing? And I think that's an adjacent point which we don't want to go into right now. But my point for, for manufacturing usually comes from, and as you pointed out, it's not manufacturing itself is so novel, but the idea of having people who don't have much skills coming into working in one particular company or an organization where they're selling goods to outside world, which is why the IT service export model of India was a such huge success, was because we had people with, you know, comparatively to the Western standards, lower technology skills, but still much cheaper. Therefore, we had a clear competitive advantage and we use that for incredible benefit. And that led to national income overall of the country growing because it was coming from outside. And that income then fueled consumer growth uh, across India, right? And that was really important for us to, to develop more of those competitive advantages across the industry. And it doesn't have to manufacturing, but as of right now, it would seem like the easiest one in terms of absorbing large amounts of people, but it hasn't happened for so long. So maybe we should really just looking at different places. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that, that you mentioned like IT, because yeah. uh, I think that's kind of the main example that we have of an exportable service. Yeah. And the reason historically we've had to use manufacturing is that you're right, you need to be exporting to be growing your GDP and other factors that are going to give you capital to be yeah. able to leverage and to impact for people. Yeah. But we saw that there's a lot of problems with manufacturing. Yeah. If you look at countries that grow quickly off manufacturing, like Bangladesh and like China, it creates urban-rural divides and it leads to a lot of human rights violations because yeah. of those scaling issues. I think that there's still problems with exporting services. Like you can yeah. find, you know, human rights abuses in call centers, but they're less severe and less common than if you look at manufacturing. So I think that's exactly what I'm advocating for is yeah. I'd prefer to see a focused on exportable services that can grow in the same way that any other technology business can. And that's something that novel because you couldn't export services until you had a way of 
physically exporting the service, in this case, phone lines or internet. Yeah. And now that you're suddenly having phone line penetration in India and internet penetration in India, 4G. which has happened yeah. faster than just about anywhere else in the world in history, you're all of a sudden able to export services. You could be somebody not even living in an urban area. You could be living in a rural area. You can have a smartphone with a connection and you can be providing a service to somebody in another country without ever having to go into a call center or go somewhere. And you have the infrastructure to be able to directly get paid for that and the infrastructure to be able to collect data and monitor it and have the government monitor it to make sure that you don't have abuses or hours violations. So I think if, if you want to talk about like the weirder ways in which we might be able to grow economies, it's trying to see what industries have this really specific combination of features that they are exportable, scalable, don't garner human rights atrocities, can be managed by the government and have enough data to be able to have high level supervision during scale. Yeah, exporting education, for example. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> great example. I, I loved reading stories about you, um, but... <laughs> oh, Tyler Cohen was sending out yeah. emails about overseas nanny services during COVID, where, you know, I, I think it was families in Japan were hiring nannies from oh, must, I, a number of different countries. I don't recall yeah. now. But people who didn't have a lot of formally trained skills were able to make a lot more money than they could in their local community by exporting childcare on a smartphone. And that, I mean, it's a really small example, but that's the flavor of growth that I see increasing in the future that I'm most optimistic for. Yeah. And if we can, you know, we can have a one great professor, like I see no reason for any of our professors to not only teach us as students, you know, all of their classes should 100% be public lectures. And, you know, if there's any benefit of being in our college should be the fact that we get to meet each other. And apart from that, it's kind of irrelevant, but everyone else should get our education. And then you can add, you know, you know, we need TFs, like teaching fellows or uh, teaching assistants to help us like finish up problem sets and to help us understand the concept, which professor telling us in lecture, which we can't, you know, get their time to do. But there's no reason that has to be done with grad students. You know, there can be, tutors all across India who can potentially be, you know, those TFs. Just before we move on, I believe MIT has done such a brilliant job with their open courseware. You know, millions possibly have benefited from their public lectures. So many people that I know have learned, studied and advanced in their careers because of those public lectures that have been made available. And I genuinely believe that more colleges should make their coursework more available to the general public for people to learn from different parts of the world. They have own reasons, but yeah, it would be ideal if colleges could do that. I mean, Yale right. also has Yale open courses, but they're not as generous as MIT. Generous. They have about like 15 to 20 courses, especially in the humanities and some physics courses that have right. I taken one of the political philosophy courses. And it was, it was really, really good. And um, yeah, so I, I, you, yeah, if, if colleges could be that generous, if they could, you know, go out of their business model to just give free education to the world, that would be an enormous public good, right? This would be the best yeah. public good out there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. It's not just that. There's a lot of instructors at Harvard that don't want their teaching to be publicly available because then, you know, journalists can read it and journalists can write opinions about it, having not read the body of their work as the students in the class will have done, and then take things out of context. And because a lot of instructors are really worried about their research being taken out of context or their opinions being taken out of context, I've had a number of instructors who say, I really wish I could make this publicly available. I just worry too much about things being taken out of context. I prefer to keep it in communities where I know that everybody hearing it has the context to be able to hear it and judge it in the way I'd like them to. So I don't know if this is a problem that universities should be solving or professors should be solving or journalists should be solving, but it does seem like there should be some way for there to be security 
but also allows us to critique the ideas of instructors in a public way. Because I think having that accountability for instructors and researchers that we should be able to yeah. say, oh, there's a problem with this, yeah. or we don't like this, is really important. And that we should be able to do that in a way that accepts the context so that instructors feel comfortable putting out their work. It's, it's a weird fine line where we can all be a bit more friendly Often to Often their other. work is public. I mean, their professors, their work is published. And, you know, for example, Professor Glazer's Political Economy of Hate paper, on, one of the most incredible papers I've ever read. And that paper is public. And of course, it's journal access. Well, uh, it's public because nobody can read it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have an economics degree from Harvard to be able to make sense of the paper, which makes sense it's on the cutting edge of things. I mean, you can still read it and get good senses, you can get a good sense but to really get value out of it, you got to have some economics education. And yeah. that same professor, Edward Glaser, doesn't allow his lectures to be recorded because he's but concerned about perception. This particular last semester was the first time because of Zoom. Um, first time. First time he allowed lectures to be recorded. And but mm. that lecture still was not recorded. Wow. So that was the only lecture that was not recorded. The political economy. I understand Professor Glazer's apprehension and I understand what Ben is saying. I just think this is the public goods are just so much higher. And the returns from that is just so much higher than any particular professor's private cost that they are incurring. And so we should help, you know, we should help minimize that cost as much as possible. And that might be as students of that professor, if we believe the professor is being wrong in public, and many of us have very active Twitter accounts, and you know, we we can defend our professors, you know, like we don't really have to worry about if, if they deserve to be canceled, that that's, you know, that's different. <laughs> 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 that I think that's different. But if they are incredible professors like Professor Glazer, you know, we will defend if people are taking their things out of context. And, and, and we'll and, read through all the thousands of yes. tweets, we'll look yeah, through every single one of them. And, and, We'll but, defend him. But just the sheer possibility that it would raise from, I mean, one example actually is China. China is moving towards an online tutoring model that is much superior to anywhere else in the world, where, wherein you have this company called GSX, which has the top, mm. top tutors of China, and they give their lectures to the, like the, the, and they record it once. And so large amounts of people in rural China, as well as in the top tier China, are getting access to the best instruction akin to say a Howard professor, right? But they also then, and so they don't have to worry about that, but then they can then go by themselves and get uh, personalized tutoring from, you know, one of us as like students who can help them like in their particular questions or their clarifications, but at least the instruction, the overarching instruction is equalized across across the group of people, across a large group of people, and they're all getting access to the top uh, content. And then the, the particular things, you know, tutors in India, tutors, uh, college students can be the ones who then edit their essays or help More them on trust. essays. Yeah. 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 So like, that's how yeah, it's important, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I completely agree with you there. And I think the key factor here or the key thing here is that like you said, even though like their work might be public, it's still not public because it might not make sense to someone who does not have a background of that thing. But at the same time, I think it puts students around the world at like the same level because perhaps somebody might not have a Harvard degree, but they still know economics, say somewhere in Africa or somewhere in India the person might not go to Harvard, but like they still know what there is. And if that is made public, they can still make use of it and perhaps use it in their own lives and create impact from the work of that Harvard economist while not being at Harvard. So yeah. It's a, it's a Harvard yeah. post that's on edX and yeah. thousands and thousands of people. Have why is the follow-up class not available? Right? Yeah. Like what is the reason for that not to be the case? Uh, it's, yeah. You... I'm personally taking CS 50 and I love it. <laughs> Uh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. You are the li- living, breathing example. I mean, of if how people took Unger and Roderick's political economy class and say they are an intern at like you know the finance ministry, 
uh, of any country like in Kenya or in India, right? Now those, that student or that particular intern now has a framework to ask questions that are like really important that maybe that they would have never been able to even ask, right? And yeah, even public servants themselves, if they want to learn things and they definitely want to learn and they can't all afford to go to Howard Kennedy School midway through their career and learn these things, right? But having access to the course, watch them on their, on their phone, on their bed, it's fantastic. And maybe that also has an added externality benefit of them not having, professors not having to waste so much time on lectures. For instance, I was taking this macro um, economics course and this is the course probably has been, this, I mean, because of the pandemic, something, some fact, some, some things have changed, but th these professors, you go to yeah. lecture, they teach you the same thing. There's not even a single addition to what they yeah. teach, especially yeah. at the, you know, beginning level courses. And yeah. they teach that the, the professor was teaching the micro course, who was teaching it for four years. He was, he literally did not change the slides. Yeah. So, I mean, if they could record it four years ago and give it, distribute it among students, I mean, they would have much more time Absolutely. to do research yeah. and it would, you know, and what we would have much respectability. Right? Yeah, yeah, we talk to us. Hours. Hours of office hours? Otherwise, like, yeah. their office hours half an hour long. They can yeah. make the office hours three hours long and don't have to teach anymore. Ten, ten people done. in line to speak with the professor with for five, five minutes. minutes. Yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really do much, yeah. but... And yeah, just anyway. to add another example of the same thing, I'm taking this course on, I think, MITx called the MicroMasters in Data, Economics and Development Policy. So our class on global poverty yeah. by Professor Issa Duflo is the same class that is there on MIT of OpenCourseWare yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still relevant. Wonderful yeah, relevant. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's all available free of cost. Yeah. Good classes. I that's feel cool. like you're already following uh, all of Ben's advice for being a future economist. Yes. <laughs> I think and you have a podcast sure. already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, contribution to India. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. There's going to be a lot more to come. <laughs> so far. So far. <laughs> so oh, I liked this last topic about how to reconsider learning. I, I think we can think about sure. it a little bit more as people being educated and as societies valuing educated people. As people being educated, I think that we're used to learning in a way where you find the most proximate way to learn a topic of interest and use that one. Mm -hmm. If you go to a school and you wanna learn a topic, you take your school's class on the topic and you learn it. Mm -hmm. And the way that you learn it is usually whichever instructor you happen to pull from a random hat of instructors, they teach it to you how they understand it. They might be amazing and you might fall in love with that subject and understand it profoundly, it might be terrible and you might fall asleep and never want to take it again. Mm -hmm. I've had both experiences, though I think I've been not captivated more times than I've been captivated. Mm -hmm. When you take a literature class, you don't pull a random book out of a hat and read it as a class. Mm -hmm. The instructor helps to guide you to find what are a few of the great books, the books that are worth reading and rereading and understanding and tearing apart. And then you go through that and try to understand it. And, and when you kind of understand that, you go to the next great book and try to understand that one and get what you can from it. And then you do that more and more until you start reading contemporary issues and just kind of seeing a little mirror image of the great books and ideas you'd already read. Mm -hmm. And I think that thinking about your own education in some ways, in the same way that like a literary professor thinks about selecting books, is a good way to make sure that you're studying from the best sources that you can be. Mm -hmm. Even if you're at Harvard, you might find that the best source for what you're studying is an MIT open courseware class. Yep. There's a lot of things MIT teaches better than Harvard. 
or a book that was published 200 years ago by somebody who was just the most profound thinker on the topic and no professor or researcher or writer has really come close since. Mm -hmm. You don't even need to take a class on it, just like read the book. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of what attending Harvard kind of shows you is in some ways attending Harvard is very special. You meet amazing people and just have crazy experiences. In some way it's dramatically unspecial. <laughs> yes. You don't really have more access to information than anybody else does. You have a pretty library, but you can pirate those books online if you want them. And sometimes I'm too lazy to walk to the library, so I pirate them. Don't come after me, FBI. It doesn't give you access to better anything. information in more profound ways. It's allows you to discuss with experts, but it doesn't make it better or easier to listen to experts. Yes. So I think the thing I would advise to everybody, whatever you want to study is, figure out how to find the experts and what you want to learn and figure out how to listen from to them. And then you'll end up being an amazing thinker in whatever field of choice you've selected. And what this implies for how we think about educated individuals as a society is that we're really used to evaluating individuals off of their access to information. Like the more time that you've spent, for instance, working with information, let's say you have 10 years of job experience working in something, that means that you're better qualified to work with that information. Or the more time you spent studying information in school, the better qualified you are to work with the thinking about how they hire people. And when governments are thinking about how they elect leaders, we tend to think about those proximate indicators of knowledge. And I think what Harvard has taught me and a lot of people around me mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of people with really good credentials that have been around ideas for a lot of time, but aren't always absorbing the best ones. Yeah. So when you're thinking about how you want to be selecting individuals, when you have these zero-sum games where you have to rank people, like hiring, like electing politicians, like picking your friends and picking your professors, I think you want to be looking for people that are looking for that great information and are using that great information and trying to absorb as much of that and then trying to hire them and have them do the best things or elect them and have them do the best things. Mm -hmm. So part of democratizing access to information is realizing that when you democratize access, you also turn the race to get that information into more of a meritocracy than a waiting game, which means you want to be electing people to use that information based on how much they've absorbed rather than how much time they spent around it or which labels they've collected related to their fields. Absolutely. I mean, that's so, so critical. Like I was studying linear algebra in college, but also looking at Khan Academy almost every day to understand the concepts. I mean, I've learned almost all of my math on Khan Academy. A, a lot of the, you know, Tarun and I know, kind of became friends because we both uh, got introduced to political economy through like Noam Chomsky and like and the amount we have learned from the YouTube videos, just binge watching them. Oh. Only then we actually met and saw, you know, Danny Roderick and Unger, like that came afterwards. Uh, and then the same is true for like, just a lot of YouTube lectures that we watched. But but yeah, like absolutely. <clears throat> for me though, what has really changed and really transformed is the instructor-led learning model. Is once I figured out that I want to learn X, finding the best possible instructor becomes like my obsession because the returns from having structured learning filtered through so much noise today, so much content, so much noise from somebody who has, who you admire, who you want to emulate, provides such a such an incredible way of streamlining education and making you get to up to speed, asking the questions that you can become producer of your own content or thoughts quickly. So yeah, 100% in agreement with Ben 
on that front. Yeah. Now, I wasn't going to ask this question, but I have to ask this question now. Because of all of these resources out there in, in the world, like books, podcasts, lectures, what have been some resources that have, that have been influential for you personally that you would recommend people to check out? I don't know. I don't think there's any particular book, content, podcast, website that made the difference for me. I think I'm going to stick to my previous answer of I started economics once again midway through college because of Justin Lin, his book on Bentian Shangwu, which gives a approach of how to approach economics and methodology of economics but but once I, I read that book then my goal was to just find the professors in Harvard and outside Harvard who I believed who I, I used to watch the lectures uh, on YouTube to figure out which professor is answering the question I'm most interested in uh, uh, and then like do anything and anything I can to get the access to the readings at the very minimum, the syllabus of their course. And if not the syllabus, uh, if if I can, then the lectures of the videos as well. So that's my approach. I don't think I have any particular website or content or book that I follow. It's instructor-led. And then from then I can answer questions or my final paper I would write for any course or uh, would then be the question. Everything I've learned from the professor and then I would go in all directions possible to answer like particular question. So last semester I took a class on uh, economic history of China and my professor was Professor Ghosh, history professor actually. And so when I wrote my final paper on why is growth so important for China, like for the Chinese Communist Party, then everything I've learned from Professor Ghosh informed my thinking in terms of what particular research I want to then do and what content is most important and which authors I will want to trust most. And so many of the readings I did that was written by Professor Ghosh cite uh, readings that I then used from a research paper. So that's how I approach learning and education. Yeah. I mean, that was very comprehensive. And this is something we've discussed, I've discussed with Gorang before. We've sort of, I think we both agreed that we've learned more from YouTube than yeah. uh, overall than any particular post that we've taken at Harvard. I mean, Gorang and I were obsessed with thinkers that we find on YouTube. I mean, Noam Chomsky, large, in large part, we were able to yeah. understand his take on the world because of, you know, YouTube videos of listening to him. And and it's also, it's also a bit concerning for us because we realized because <laughs> YouTube understood us so well, every other day it was introducing us to a new <laughs> thinker that we got obsessed with. Yeah. Just latch onto that thinker and YouTube would just keep on generating these thinkers yeah. and these stocks. And there's an infinite amount of information on YouTube. I mean, you don't even have to graduate college if you just watch obsessively YouTube videos. And I, this is something that I did. I mean, if I couldn't fall asleep, I'm partially insomnia. So I would just go to bed yeah. and put on Fukuyama's lecture or Chomsky's or something, and then I'll listen to it and I'll fall asleep. So there's a lot of information on YouTube. And I mean, generally, I think as Ben emphasized, it's really important to read the right books, right? Because mm-hmm. like I know so many of my friends, I've done this before, like mm-hmm. you just pick up a book, book and yeah. you read it halfway through, you don't know what you're doing and it's not the best book on the subject. So it's really important to find what information is worth reading, worth understanding. And I think the best way to do it is to ask people, you know, if you have seniors who've done this, you know, you ask Ben about what, you could, what behavioral economics books you should read. I and, spend about everything. Yeah, or <laughs> Ben about everything, but yeah. If you want to you know which papers to read, which books to read, just ask, come and ask me or ask Gorang about political economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, reaching out to people who've done that, and just sort of some a strategy that I employed after high school. So, for instance, if I wanted to understand Buddhism, and I wanted to like really un- had a, a mm-hmm. academic appreciation of it, and there's a Oxford series called A Very Short Introduction to. And you have a lot of, yeah, it's, there's hundreds of books on many different subjects, a very short introduction to Marxism, a very short introduction to Buddhism. And if you want 
particular subject that you're really interested in, in like 100 to 150 pages, they will introduce you to the greater themes of the of, of, of that subject. And you can delve deeper into it once you finish it. So just to give you a foundation of ideas. So yeah, watch a lot of YouTube videos, read a lot of, you know, big thinkers in the field. And just you can start with a very short introduction if you want to just get acquainted with it before you delve deeper into the subject. Just like a quick follow-up question, could you please like share some YouTube channels that you would recommend people to check out? For new economic thinking, it has a course of Hajun Chang on economics. It's really great. It has a new course, which I'm wanting to watch on innovation and economy. But more importantly, it has many, many, many interviews with a whole wide range of economists trying to answer very different topics, including one of my professors, Karen Dinan, this semester. But it's just a wide variety of economists where you can like get to know what they're thinking and get introduced to them. A lot of economists I got introduced because this channel kept popping up and recommended yeah. uh, with new with new, <laughs> new scholars. So that was that's one of my favorites. And once you, once you start with that, YouTube will sort of understand, understand your preferences and it will give you, like, give you more. But yeah. uh, Intelligence Squared is another podcast. Yes, that of, course, enough. of course. Uh, they invite, it's not specifically limited to economists, but they invite politicians, poets, you know, people yeah. working in literature, etc. The very luminaries in the field, um, especially mo- mostly British, um, sometimes American, and they have big debates on big issues of the day. All right, so this is really interesting because the website or the channel which Gorang just recommended, it's called the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Fun fact, the Institute for New Economic Thinking is one of our partners here at Tidings Media. So I will put the link to their website and their channel in the description of this podcast. Please check that out. And also, if you go to our website, there's a page called About Our Partners, namely our partners here at tidings media include the institute for new economic thinking the young scholars initiative marginal revolution university and a fun youtube channel called market power so if you're ever looking for resources to learn economics please check out our partners at tidings media i'm ashamed to admit that i i I have not been watching this channel (laughs) clearly i'm I'm good folks who believe in it so i'll also yeah thank you for teaching me things yeah. For my recommendations of information sources, I'm going to make them different from these two in two ways. One, I'm very bad at processing videos because I, I get distracted and start playing with things or moving around. So if you have attention challenges like I do, uh, I, I personally find it easier to read because I read until I don't want to read and I stop reading and come back to it. You can kind of pick your own speed or listen to podcasts because I can be doing other things at the same time. So those are my, my usual sources of info. Something makes me very tempted to recommend books. The, the problem with books is if, if, you, if you don't like it, like the whole book's ruined. So I I prefer to recommend some information aggregators, which are sources you can continually get a lot of really good uh, written and podcast info, kind of like these these guys you've been talking about. Some of my favorites here are Tyler Cohen does a fabulous job aggregating with uh, Marginal Revolution. He has a podcast and an email series that are all delightful. He gets amazing guests, including just about like every living Nobel Prize winner in economics and also varies into like food and culture and history and fiction and every fabulous field, but with the incisive mind of a rational economist like Tyler Cohen, which is a fun way to process things. Another one is The Seen and the Unseen by Amit Varma, oh, yes. which is a, a favorite podcast. Of, okay, it looks like everybody here, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, also Hey Month, though. Also Hey Month, yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't have to sell this. This is an absolutely delightful podcast. Amit Varma is an, a wonderful interviewer, and he can get people to talk for just hours about what they love talking about, and he gets wonderful people to, to come on board. And then a couple ones that are really worth reading, a little bit less for economics, but more for just, if you're the kind of person who would want to learn economics, I think you'd want to learn what these places are talking about as well, which would be Farnham Street. It is a, is a fabulous blog, podcast, and email listserv that talks about economics a little bit, but a lot more about just the general theory of 
optimizing, making life better, making your career better and learning more. All things I think listeners can learn from. And Tim Ferriss's uh, podcast mm -hmm. as well. He gets some really fabulous guests and has a tendency to interview people who are really smart in very different ways and figure out what they do and what their habits are and what you can learn from them and how you can implement them in your own life. And if you pick a couple of these, even just one of them, you will end up finding about so many other books and movies and shows and journal articles and thinkers that once you pick one good information aggregator, all of a sudden your learning network just branches out like crazy. Read this for half an hour a day and you will have 30 new media things to like look at by the end of the week. And all of a sudden you have too much information. Do you want to share your note-taking skills? My note-taking skills. I mean, like note-taking or just like information processing, not just consuming. Sure, I, I could, I could do that. Oh, geez, these are. I'm not sure how replicable these are or how like advisable these are. The way that I like to process my readings is a little bit crazy because it's very rare that I read something all the way through. Like where we're sitting next to my pile of books right now, which is a little bit too high, and I'll have like like probably five or ten books that I'm kind of going through like simultaneously and reading like you know, 10 pages a day. And then sometimes I'll read like a hundred pages of one in a day. And then sometimes I won't touch any of them for a week. So I, I read it like really inconsistent rates and I spread out across them, which is primarily because I only want to read when I'm like really excited to be reading that specific thing. And when I feel like learning, I sit down and say, what is the number one thing I want to learn right now? And I won't read anything but that. And I'll read that until it no longer feels like the number one thing. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm reading something because it's the number one thing, that that's usually because I think it's really important to have like some active questions about it. Mm -hmm. So when I take notes on it, I don't note down any information. Like I, I, I forget author names, I forget dates, I forget years, I forget citations, but I, I take notes about the answers to the questions that made me read the books and the questions that I didn't know that I had that the books introduced me to. Mm -hmm. And these are such simple ideas that the way I take notes on them is um, really, really plain. So I have, let's see if we can, I guess I can't show things, this is a podcast. I have a bunch of three by five index cards. Uh, I have a big box of a couple thousand of them. I will write a few words about what the question is or what answers it. If I need more, I'll write down 40 of these cards until I get the idea all the way down. And then if I think it's something to return to later, I file it away in a big box with a label that kind of categorizes the types of questions, the type of answers. And if it's something that I'm still actively chewing on and want to be thinking about and want to be prompting me, I kind of stand it up at my desk. I have uh, this little wooden stand whose job, I believe, is to hold cards when people play card games so they can see all the cards in their hand without having to hold them. And it holds all my index cards. And when I need to read something or need to think about something or I'm stuck in a problem or a decision, I just kind of glance at it and remind myself about the big ideas that I'm working on and use that as a kind of guiding process. And that's how I think about reading. Wait, what happened to drone research? Oh, I use that too, but for something else. I don't use it for reading. Room Research is an amazing tool for really long form notes. It's this very cool tool that was recently developed. It's a very fancy note-taking platform. If you like coding and thinking too much about systems, it's fun. I don't think it's an essential for anybody and it oftentimes costs money that you can get like free or discounted versions. With, with reading, I don't like having to make a big thing because when I have a big to-do associated with reading, yeah, I start yeah. to have to say, okay, should I read now? Oh, I don't really want to write a big yeah, thing. I don't really have time. So make reading like the most lazy thing you can do. Be willing to stop halfway through. Be willing to spill coffee on your books. Make it so that there's no excuse not to be doing it. And then you'll end up doing it a lot more. Yeah. Uh, read stuff you don't want to read. Don't learn things you don't want to learn. You won't do a good job of it. Perfect. I think I'm going to come down to one of our last questions. So 
What do you have in mind for your future? What are you curious about right now? I like the ending of the question right now mm. because mm-hmm. my interest had been in constant flux mm. before coming to Harvard. On my application to Harvard, I said I would do research on you know cosmology and do <laughs> physics because I had done Olympiads back home. And the reason I got into Harvard was because of my credentials in academic Olympiads, worked on in physics uh, and math, etc. But now here I'm, I am doing something completely different. <laughs> and you know, freshman year, I, I actually got into economics relatively recently because I started off with computer science and then so that's why you know I haven't taken as many econ courses as I would like to but yeah right now the plan and it, this this plan came into being it came into existence about only last semester like I sort of you know as a result of uh, long self-introspection that was facilitated by the pandemic one of the silver linings of the pandemic and I sort of realized that I was the, the things that truly moved me was what impacted human lives. You know, it could be conflict, it could be the pandemic, it could be, you know, living in poverty. And I also joined this effective altruist sort of organization on campus and did a fellowship on that. And it was really sort of, I also come from a developing country and I've seen that use huge chasm that separates, you know, the developing world with the developed world, a case which has been uh, consolidated in the recent distribution of vaccines that we've seen in the world, right? The tremendous amount of inequality that that exists, which is morally reprehensible, at least from my perspective. So I would like to do any work that sort of contributes to maybe making the world a lot more cosmopolitan in a very true sense that each one of us it's a more you know mobile world where there's less hatred and there's more you know the the prosperity of economic development is the dividends of economic developments uh, across the world is more equitably distributed so i don't really know what where, where the path is or what i can do but yeah, I'm very interested in journalism, you know, journaling ideas about economics, not like reporting day-to-day activities, but, you know, like talking about ideas, talking about, you know, where the world would go or what, what's happening in you know, South Asia vis-a-vis what's happening in other parts of the world. So yeah, um, not looking to go into academia because I think there's other better people to take that. I mean, Ben would be a great academic if he, if he chooses to be so, but that's what I think. But I personally don't think I would be such a, an excellent academic person per se, because I'm also not very mathematically minded and econ grad, grad school like necessitates, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, you know, hardcore mathematical thinking. So yeah, for now, I'm thinking about working in international development. That would be the closest thing. Uh, at least that's what I'm passionate about for now. And if I could work, you know, in for the World Bank, that could be a possibility. I could work as a journalist. There's so many avenues to take, and this question is confusing me more and more. So let's stop. <laughs> Go bad. I have a hard time answering this question. My interests and the things I plan on working on in the future, and right now I'm currently working on, are how to generate happiness and health and wealth for myself and the rest of the world. I'm trying to keep it pretty broad right now because those seem to be the things that I care about and the things that I think are like morally good. So I wanna be doing those, but I find that the most effective ways to do things oftentimes come from doing things differently. And to do things differently and then to do things in particularly cool or special ways and innovative ways, I think sometimes requires a little bit of lack of focus. And this might be specific to me, but one of my shortcomings and the reason that I don't think I'm going to be a good academic and therefore I'm not going to go into academia is 
I'm really bad at focusing on one thing. When I try to focus on just one thing and say, this is my entire life for, you know, the next 10 hours or the next 10 years, my brain wants to do just about anything but that. Like I start thinking about like, you know, what I'm going to have for dinner and like, you know, what a friend said to me and like some other book that I was reading that seems more interesting now because nobody's forcing me to read it. And I, it just becomes incredibly unproductive and I, I don't really become particularly creative or innovative. And I find that the times when I do my best work are when I have no real intention, maybe some broad goals of wanting to find cool ideas or wanting to be happier and make the world happier, that when you get bored, you start figuring out the things that make you excited and the ideas that are the most intriguing to you. And then you start working on those almost by accident. And I'm trying to be in a place in life for you know at least the next couple of years where I have the, the room to get bored and therefore the room to work on problems, not because it's something to do, but just because it seems interesting. And then I'm kind of hoping that I'll find something interesting through that process, may or may not. But it, it took me a while to kind of get to that place for, for the last like you know couple of years, I was just trying out like every possible job that seemed to be of interest, like just obscene numbers. I think I probably did seven internships this year. No, no human being should do seven internships because my thought process was I'll try, try something and I find the things that I don't like about it. Um, like, oh, I, I liked this job because I got to learn this and I got to do that, but I didn't like these restrictions on freedom and these restrictions on that and these priorities. And I try to find another job that was a little bit closer to my like, perfect view of what a job should look like. And I, I worked for the places that I always wanted to work for like my entire life. Like I, since I was like a very like young child, I wanted to work for like the world bank. It just seemed like the coolest thing. Like, you know, you get to just help the world. That seems great. Mm -hmm. And I loved working there. I learned so many things, but I also had like so many issues around, you know, the goal of the institution is to make the world a better place, but I'm not like really playing a meaningful part in that. Like, you know, when you start working at an organization with 10,000 employees, you're the 10,000 and first employee, it's kind of your job to do what the organization's already doing and keeping it running, as opposed to looking for the ways to change it and make things better. So I've decided that for myself, since I'm so bad at kind of you know, going along with good ways of doing things and tend to do my best work when I'm kind of on my own thinking about problems, that I'm going to be focusing purely on that. So I'm actually going to be withdrawing, like, at least indefinitely from college uh, and focusing on doing my own learning and my own projects. And right now what that looks like is I'm doing some kind of independent research along with other organizations and individuals. So I have a, a paper on public health and adolescent suicidality that should be uh, coming out at some point in the next six months or so with Shauna Sisler at the University of Utah. I'm doing some research with the U.S. Treasury right now on environmental issues that I mentioned earlier. I'm doing a lot of kind of consulting and helping other people with their research projects so I can figure out kind of what tends to make for good ideas in a, in a more abstract sense. And I'm working on uh, kind of building my first app right now. I have no idea how to do app development, but I've been working on that for, for a few weeks now and hoping that'll make some progress. So just keeping side projects going and hoping to get bored. Very interesting stuff. Thank you. Gaurang? Yeah, nothing as interesting as the two of them. I will be working in, in finance for another short to medium term post-college, as it seems right now. And then we will take it from there. My personal hope is the I'm hoping to build a course on India and the Indian economy in the coming year with Tarun. And, 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 and the goal is to have spend the full year, you know, trying to focus myself in that particular question and that enables me to you know encapsulate all my years of academic interest so far into one thing hopefully that you know I don't know 
how this course will help people or benefit people in the future. But the hope is that it is an incredible opportunity for our personal learning. But at the same time, any future economists, especially in economists who have the question about how to make our country grow and how do we go about doing that. And hopefully from that particular platform, if I can keep building that platform as a course and adding more and more resources. Some of the things I discussed earlier about having the best professors, have the goods public, have the teaching public, but we kind of want to you know, mirror that opportunity and hopefully have young economists building that, that product and platform going forward. And hopefully, you know, I can just stop doing all the, the job work and use that as a platform to uh, enter research or enter policy work or enter any other facet of things, but not as clear-cut. I plan on being the first student in Karang and Tarun's class in India. Yes, <laughs> we're very excited for that. That sounds so interesting. I would love to be the second one. All right, I think that's it from my end. Those are all the questions which I had. Thank you so much for all your time. This was fantastic. If you have any concluding statements, any last parting words of advice for anyone listening who is into economists because they've made like the 90 minutes or like all, almost two hours into this audio podcast. I guess Ben has a lot to share, but I'll, I'll briefly, uh, I'll briefly <laughs> give my concluding <laughs> thoughts. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, doesn't just apply to economics, but this is something that's really helped me. There's a poet called John Keats. He's an English poet who has this concept of negative capability. And this was something that was introduced to about two years ago when I was really grappling with you know, uncertainty. I think like, I, I don't know about other people, but in general, I find it really hard to cope with uncertainty. And uncertainty is also a source of great anxiety. You know, philosophers like Kierkegaard have said, you know, a lot of things about anxiety, but yeah, as human beings, I don't think we are perfectly um, designed to cope with that uncertainty. And, you know, when you're in college, when you're doing liberal arts, when you're even deciding which field in economics to, you know, focus on or what you want to do in, in life, I think uncertainty is the biggest barrier that sort of that can cripple action and that can make you not productive and that's what i experience and negative capability is that concept of being okay with uncertainty embracing uncertainty living with uncertainty and creating beauty creating works of art create doing what you love and fundamentally understanding that in life involves uncertainty and it's okay to be uncertain it, it, it took me a lot of a long long time to come to terms with that and now that i have it's been very very empowering so i would just urge you know if you're uncertain if you don't know what you want to do if you don't know which course your life is taking it's it's fundamentally the right thing to do you should not be certain about most things in life and it's okay to be uncertain i think that's fabulous advice because especially in these times when you know nobody could have thought about COVID and its impacts and taking classes online. So I think this is a really good way to look at uncertainty wherein it's not negative, right? Yeah. Uncertainty is a way of life, so it can be negative. <laughs> like it's the absolute, you know. The, Amor fati, yeah. Nietzsche would say. Oh, yeah. I want to repeat an old Edward Glaser quote that always stuck with me. Always check your second derivatives. Sometimes <laughs> local maxima feel like global maxima. In other words, for, for those people that, that don't spend too much time uh, doing economics with a lot of calculus involved, <laughs> sometimes you have options that you're currently pursuing that feel pretty good in the sense that if you change them, things would immediately get worse. A book that you're reading where if you stopped reading it, you'd immediately be reading zero books. Or a class that you're taking where if you dropped it, you'd have dropped a class and that would look really, really bad. But oftentimes, 
there are decisions you can make to make things worse in the short term, and then they'll probably make things much, much better off and take you to, to higher highs than you were at before. Mm. So I think it's really important to be willing to make things temporarily unpleasant and be optimistic enough to envision peaks that are higher than you've currently seen, and then to be brave enough to take the actions that try to bring you towards those higher peaks. Nothing more to say. Thank you for a wonderful interview, Yash. Thank you so much for inviting us. It was a great pleasure. Absolutely. Incredible. All right. So that's the end of this podcast where we learned about economics at Harvard. We had lots and lots of advice for young economists. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you loved it, let us know. If you didn't, then also please let us know on some feedback and how we can improve this podcast. We are on social media platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and newly on Twitter. So whatever platform that you use, you can find us there. Give us a follow, subscribe this podcast. If you're looking to learn economics or history, you can check out our website at www.tidingsmedia.org. We'll see you next week on the next episode of the Tidings Podcast.